0: 418 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOL. And we are welcoming back to the program Dr. Kirk Griffin. He is a researcher with Sanford Health specializing in type 1 diabetes, correct? That is correct. And uh, you have been working with Sanford now for how long?
1: Oh, got here just about uh, four years ago. Little coming up in four and a half now.
0: Yeah. Um, So, and you were brought here specifically to work on type one diabetes and part of the big the gift and to you know find a cure for type one diabetes. Um, And uh, first of all, I think it's you know how's it going, Kurt?
1: (laughs) It's a long game, Um, and. You know, I think things are actually going remarkably well. I was really brought in to jumpstart clinical trials, and we have uh, a couple people working on the basic science side of things to help get new ideas that we can eventually bring into uh, people. But really, in terms of making faster advances, we're trying to see what can we actually, what's available now that we can actually apply in people with type 1 diabetes and try to do something about the underlying disease rather than just treating it with insulin.
0: Right, and so you know I, I noticed I'd heard about uh a some news recently about a uh oral insulin because the big problem obviously is you know you either have to have a pump that injects it straight into your body if or you give yourself right. shots every day that's that's a huge uh burden for people, and um that if you could just take a pill, it would be better.
1: Right. And unfortunately, when you hear oral insulin, you think, oh, I don't need a shot anymore. That's not quite what they're trying to do. It is more trying to advance the uh, immune aspects of it. Uh, so type 1 diabetes at its heart is an autoimmune disease. It's, the immune system is attacking those cells that make insulin. Uh, and insulin, a, it's a, basically a small protein in the, as a hormone. So when you take it by mouth, your stomach is really good at digesting that type of food. Mm -hmm. So when you take it by mouth, it doesn't actually come in and give you an effective insulin to lower your blood sugar. But if you think about all the foods that we eat and yes, some people do have some pretty significant food allergies, but most of us don't. And a lot of that is when we process the food that we eat, we're presenting it to the immune system in such a way that says, this is not something that's invading and attacking us. This is food and we need to learn to, to live with it and leave it alone. So, we were really trying to harness that same machinery. And this also goes back to, you know, about 20 years ago, there was a diabetes prevention trial, type 1, where they took people that were relatives of people with type 1 diabetes and had, uh, they tried a number of things. They tried giving some people insulin shots to see if they could prevent it. They tried... Uh, giving oral insulin. And what they found is overall not a big effect, but some of the people who already had antibodies and were th- th- is basically think of it as a marker that your body's reacting to insulin inappropriately, those people looked like it might help. And that set up the whole oral insulin project through TrialNet. And to give you an idea of how big this is, TrialNet, at that point, uh, when, when they s- closed enrollment for the study, they had screened 138,000 people. Wow. So, th- you know, how big is Sioux Falls? Yeah, exactly. So I picture screening everybody, and this is an international study. And from that, they found 2,000 people that qualified f- for the oral insulin study because they had antibodies against insulin. And then from that, they th- kind of whittled down, and they wound up with about 500 that actually w- w- completed the study. So it's a pretty big sieve to try to find, you know, those needles in the, the many haystacks
0: here. Yeah. And so the they published the study about it uh, in the yeah. Journal of American Metal, JAMA. Basically. JAMA, yeah. I always forget what the acronym stands <laughs> Journal for. Journal of the American Medical Association. There we go. So, and yeah. and and they found is it is it is it encouraging? Not encouraging with the oral insulin.
1: I think the polite way to put it might be disappointing. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So it happens. It does. <laughs> uh, and this is where. You know, we, we have something that seems like it should be a good idea, seems like it should work. There's some preliminary evidence to say, yes, we should go ahead and do this very large, very complex study. And we come out of it and go, boy, that's really kind of disappointing. Because if you look at the bulk of the people who came into the study, there did not seem to be a benefit to this. Mm. Um, where it gets potentially academically interesting is if you look at some subgroups. If there's particularly one group where they had multiple antibodies, not just insulin, but to some of the other proteins that show you have reactions that lead to type one. And surprisingly, they, they weren't the ones that were really early. they were the ones who already had some defects in insulin production. So they, they didn't have diabetes by our classic definition. Mm-hmm. But they were starting to have slightly high blood sugars. Those people seem to be slowed down by this. That's interesting. So it's kind of interesting. It kind of makes us question kind of what we think is going on, how this leads up to it. Um, it's not, at this point, readily applicable to anything because we're not testing kind of the general world for who has antibodies, who might fit into this little cubby hole. Um but that's something that, down the road, we hope to be able to have a better way of figuring out who's really at risk.
0: And Sanford was part of this, participated. Absolutely. yeah. And we,
1: we had patients here, and, you know, as I said, it's an international study uh, through Diabetes net. But, yeah, we, we had a number of patients that we followed here uh, in Sioux Falls. And uh, people really come from all over to try to be a part of this, see what they can do to uh, slow this down. Especially, these are all kids who had family members with type 1, so they knew what they were up against, and pretty highly motivated families.
0: Interesting. We're talking with Dr. Kirk Griffin. He is a researcher at Sanford Health and uh, Sanford Research and is an expert in type 1 diabetes, which is one of the uh, uh, focuses of Sanford Research. Um, So this, the oral insulin part of that was primarily type 1, right? All of that
1: was uh, type type 1. It was... Kids who did not have type 1 yet but had family, family members with type 1 and were at risk for moving on to that and had evidence that their bodies were already starting to head in that direction.
0: And this, is of course, is type 1 is what we think of as juvenile diabetes often, or but it can yeah. it can p- occur in different ages, yeah. right? That,
1: that, that was the old name for it yeah. because classically it's, it's mostly children get it. You kind of have two peaks, one kind of preschool age, another kind of in adolescence with puberty. That kind of lifts a barrier. Um, but we definitely see ad- adults who come down with it, and mm-hmm. a lot of times they're not really recognized as type 1.
0: Yeah, and so type 1, it, it attracts the attention uh, because it's children in large measure. Uh, and that's why one of the reasons I think Sanford was focused on it so sharply, um, because that's where you see you know, kids who are now looking at an entire life of trying to take insulin through various means. It's gotten easier, but it used to be even more difficult. Easier is relative. And I think,
1: you know, if if we look back to when I was in training and we had Mm -hmm. different sources of insulin, it was much harder to manage. Uh, The real problem is it takes constant vigilance. Mm -hmm. Every time you eat, you need to count your carbs. You need to figure out how much insulin you need to take. You need to be checking your blood sugars, see if you need extra insulin for that. And you don't get a a break. No,
0: it's tough for a kid to do that too.
1: Kids, families, you know, it's, you know, you have little kids, you know, that toddlers that the parents... You know, have to kind of run around and keep up with them. And I don't know when the last time you were around a toddler at mealtime, but, <laughs> um, you know, you can't really predict how much you're going to eat before they're done.
0: Right. And so you see cases with kids where they'll, they'll basically crash when you're not expecting. I mean, I don't know if you ever we'll expect hoping. it, but.
1: I mean, we, we know there are certain things that make you more likely to crash. Crash meaning having a low blood sugar. Right. Having, you know, an insulin reaction would be the adult term a lot of people would use. And a lot of times it's, you know, th- they didn't eat everything that you thought they did and you gave them insulin to cover more than they ate. It's all about balance. Yeah. Or they were more active than you expected them to be. And that makes the insulin work better. And then th- down goes the blood sugar. And the key thing is monitoring, keeping on top of it. Um, you know, we... Th- th- Think about all the horrible things that can come from diabetes Mm -hmm. and the huge toll it takes on people and the huge burden financially for our whole society. Yeah, Um, A lot of that we can prevent by keeping people under tight control.
0: Yeah, We are talking with Dr. Kurt Griffin. He is a uh, researcher with Sanford Health and he focuses on type 1 diabetes. We've been talking about a study uh, about oral insulin, but we've got some other stuff to talk about here. So you're going to want to stick with us through the news. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 433 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we are continuing to chat with Dr. Kurt Griffin. He is a researcher type of type 1 diabetes over at Sanford Research and uh, we've had Kurt on the program before and it's it's fascinating work and we're going to talk a little bit about type two in a minute but I want to continue this conversation about type one a little bit so explain the difference to people now because uh, we were talking off air a little bit and I said they really should have different names because they're related they're similar but they're different afflictions type one and type two explain the difference to us
1: so as, as you mentioned kind of uh, a little bit before we went on the break, you know, we used to call it juvenile diabetes, and then he had adult onset, or people would call it insulin-dependent diabetes versus non-insulin-dependent for type 1 and type 2, respectively. What it comes down to is type 1 is a defect in insulin production that classically is a defect that arises after your immune system, which is supposed to keep us healthy, that immune system attacks the cells that makes insulin, that make insulin, and you can't make insulin anymore. And the only treatment we have for that is replacing insulin, which, as we were talking earlier, is neither trivial nor uh, really practicable in the way we would like it to be. Right. Type two is kind of at least starts the other way around, where <clears throat> you uh, still make insulin. But classically, between you know, a variety of genes, and there are at least twenty some genes that are involved in the risk factors. But the added factor that we see day to day in this country, especially, is extra weight and inactivity. That makes insulin not work so well. And kind of the analogy I use to with you know my my patients is, you know, maybe you know you're the good kid, but you know, imagine your brother's sitting on the couch and your mom asks him to do something, and he kinda doesn't hear them. What, is it, what happens next? Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah, mom's going to yell at them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what happens, is your body starts making more and more insulin to overcome what is essentially resistance to that insulin. And you can maintain your blood sugars for a while. Sometimes you get something, you know, big words, acanthosis and agrocans, It means mm-hmm. dark, scaly skin you know, around your neck and your various other places where your body folds. Um, that's a sign that your insulin levels are high and your skin's overgrowing because of that. And at a certain point you can't keep up anymore. And instead of making so much insulin and still keeping it under control, now you're still making as much insulin as you possibly can, and it's not enough, now your blood sugar starts going up. Mm. And that's type 2 diabetes. So diabetes mellitus is sugar diabetes. It's both type 1 and type 2 have high blood sugar, and that high blood sugar is, you know, what we say causes all those problems that we we try to avoid. But kind of coming out from different mechanisms. Yeah,
0: they're caused by different Things yeah. to put it very bluntly. <laughs> yeah. Now you said something there that kind of freaked me out, and I didn't know about the skin. Your skin is what? Yeah. If you what have, is that?
1: If you have really high levels of insulin, insulin is a growth factor. And in fact, when you make growth hormone, there's another hormone called insulin-like growth factor, which guess what is like insulin. Yeah. But it's how <laughs> growth hormone works. Uh, and so that insulin will actually bind to the IGF one receptor and actually cause the skin to grow. And you kind of put it around the neck, under your armpits, and your groin, uh, around your waist, you'll get, it'll kind of turn dark and scaly and thick. And some people say, it's like, you know, I've seen some parents you know, take their kids and try to scrub it off, and you can scrub some of it off, but it's not dirt, It's it looks dirty, but it's kind of this thick, scaly skin that's a sign that your insulin levels are really high.
0: That's amazing, I didn't know that. We're talking with Dr. Kirk Griffin. He is a researcher with Sanford Health, and he is specializing in type one diabetes. Um, so, type two. First of all, I want to ask you. You've talked about this before, but this—it's uh, called the T-Rex. So, and it apply. Before we get off type one, I want to talk about that because um, you're doing. It's amazing to me. So, ex- explain T-Rex to me again.
1: All right. So, t- T-Rex is. A- kind of our current study that we're doing to try to see what we can do to rebalance the immune system. So as I said earlier, type 1, the immune system loses that balance. We're supposed to leave our body alone and starts attacking those cells that we need to make insulin. Normally we have, you know, you think white blood cells is part of the immune system. A lot of those white blood cells are a type of cell called a lymphocyte, and those come in a bunch of flavors. Uh, The key ones are T cells because they come from the thymus, And those, again, come in a bunch of different flavors and you have effector T cells that kind of drive an attack. And then we have regulatory T cells that are kind of our mechanism to kind of demobilize after the war is over and let's bring everybody home and the National Guard back to their families. People with type one diabetes when they're first diagnosed don't have as many Tregs as the rest of us and the ones they have don't work well. So what we're trying to do is actually taking, we're actually taking kids Within 100 days of being diagnosed with type 1, we know they have diabetes. We can, you know, kind of justify, you know, doing something. But they're still, early enough, they're still making insulin. So we're trying to preserve that as best we can. And what we do is uh, we take the kids to the blood bank. And, you know, just like, you know, when I go to the blood bank and donate mm-hmm. a unit of blood, you know, it goes into a bag on the floor uh, coming out of a kid. But we kind of need that much to get enough Tregs regs purified out to do this. Um, they get shipped to a very special, clean manufacturing facility in Mountain View, California, where they get expanded. And if you go from a couple million to billions, now we give them back to the same kid they came from with the idea of filling that gap that they were missing those T-regs before. So we're not trying to over-suppress, but we're just trying to bring the immune system back into balance.
0: So uh, you you put the cells back in them. How long does that last? I mean, is it is it a situation where... It, you're just topping off the tank or is it, does it like have a culture and it? will grow them.
1: That's, that's a great question. Oh, thanks. And, <laughs> um, you know, back when I was first learning about these, they used to be called suppressor T cells because they suppress the effector T cells. Uh, now we call them regulatory T cells or T regs. And at least what I learned in the textbooks was T regs don't live that long. So yeah, is this topping off the tank and then they're gone. Um, The preliminary study, this was all kind of developed by a guy, Jeff Bluestone, at UCSF, who's kind of a preeminent immunologist who developed the techniques to do this. And at UCSF, they did a handful of adult patients as the first safety study, uh, and that's part of what lets us now do it in kids. And what they did, and what we're doing as well, too, is when we grow the cells and expand them, we feed them glucose that has a heavy isotope of hydrogen, Okay, so it's labeled deuterium. And basically, what that lets us do is it's not radioactive, so there's no safety issue, mm-hmm. which is important, especially in kids. Yeah. You know, th- you they're, not walking around, yeah. they're not glowing in the dark. <laughs> um, but it lets us trace that, and we can find that using something called mass spectrometry. And what they found was yeah, after you give these cells in, you kind of peak after a couple days, and then they start coming down. But even a year later, you can still find a good number of these cells are labeled and show they're they're the ones that were expanded. They're still there. They still look like regulatory T cells. And some of them at least have some other markers on them that make them look more like they have what we call a memory phenotype. So if you think about, you know, when we get uh, immunizations, we have an initial response and then we have these cells that stick around for a long time. As long as they're not being stimulated, they just kind of sit there. But when they get stimulated, they're able to respond very quickly. And we now have Tregs that were expanded that go back in that look like they have those same kind of markers, like they should be able to fill that role. And I don't know if one dose is going to be enough to be done permanently, right. but there's at least, they stick around a lot longer than we thought.
0: And that's what you're studying.
1: And as we're doing now, uh, we're going to be doing at least 111 kids in the study. Uh, that'll give us a little better answer as to just how long it lasts, how does it work in kids, what's going to be the right dose in kids, and go from there.
0: And it takes a long time. I mean, it's not something you're going to find out in six months, right? Uh, that, that's an understatement. Yeah. So you're, you're planning to you're retire in this study, right? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm not that old. Okay, Good. Uh, no, but it's realistically, you know, these studies take somewhere between a year and a half and two years just to recruit into them. Our primary endpoint is when that last kid has been in it for at least a year. Mm. And so you're already talking two to three years from the time you open to the time you have your, your first look at critical data. Um, that doesn't count the time that goes into planning for it, getting the regulatory approval, doing all these things up front, which is easily another one to two to ten years, depending on the study. Yeah,
0: but in terms of Sanford's mission and um, trying to find a cure, this is this is the point of the spear, correct?
1: Yeah, and I think if you look at most of the things that have been tried in this uh, space, you know, this kind of nuance that recently diagnosed, you're still making some insulin. What can we do to preserve it? That's where the whole field is focused. And most of the studies so far has been taking drugs that are already available, already proved, already used in children, so we have a safety profile, mostly coming from rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. Uh, so adults with rheumatoid arthritis, kids with juvenile arthritis, uh, there are a lot of these drugs that modulate the immune system that we've said, okay, well, they're already approved. We, we think they're, they're going to be pretty safe. Let's try it in type 1 diabetes. Most of those haven't worked as well as we would like. Mm-hmm. A lot of them may delay progression by six months, maybe nine months in some cases, but that's not kind of what we're after here. Right. Right. Um, The Treg study is the first one that we're doing with cell-based therapy, and um, you know I I remain optimistic, but you know we'll we'll have to see what it goes. And I'm completely blinded as to who's getting which arm of the study, high dose, low dose. Uh, So you just get down.
0: Yeah, we're here with Kirk Griffin. He is a doctor at uh, Sanford Research, and he works on type 1 diabetes. We're actually going to talk a little bit about type 2 diabetes because there's some interesting new numbers about type 2. And that's, I think, uh, we're talking more lifestyle there. But we will get more into that after the break. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO. 447 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we're talking with Dr. Kirk Griffin, he is a researcher with Sanford Health, specializing in type one diabetes and we're going to change up the subject just a little bit and talk about type two uh, even though this is not your point of research. You probably know more about type two diabetes than say me, so we're going to go with that um the There was a study out, and I was kind of fascinated by this. It said that basically diabetes worldwide is worse than we thought, and that By 2045, 693 million people will have diabetes and that it, that the world spends more than 720 million, $20 billion on healthcare expenditures related to diabetes. That's just, that's amazing. But the greatest rise in Southern Asia, Middle East and Africa, I mean, that's just kind of stunning how many people actually could have diabetes.
1: Yeah. And that's worldwide, and that's a huge impact. And if you think about type 1 diabetes, I mentioned, you know, there are 27 genes that give you a predisposition. But after that, there's a lot of lifestyle influence, too. Mm -hmm. Weight gain, sedentary, or, you know, lack of physical activity have a huge impact. And if you think about those places that you mentioned, you know, Southeast Asia, um africa a lot of those you're seeing places that used to be subsistence farming very poor you know barely getting enough to to Mm -hmm. eat and survive Mm -hmm. all of a sudden now they're becoming much more westernized and their diet is westernized and their activity is westernized and instead of going out working in a field behind an ox you're in a call center answering Mm -hmm. phones. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's not too surprising. And, you know, we've seen that too, you know, classically if you look at, you know, some of the Southwest Indian, Native American populations where, you know, all of a sudden there's a border between the U.S. and Mexico and on the U.S. side they get, you know, flour and lard Mm -hmm. and things like that. And on the Mexico side there's still subsistence farmers. Same families, very different phenotypes and very different rates of diabetes.
0: And in the United States uh, we have... Uh, there's What what are the numbers in terms of the rates of diabetes, type 2 diabetes in American populations?
1: Yeah, so if we want to look at the American population, uh, out of this same study, they, they include the U.S. as part of the world. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control um, also tracks and it has very similar numbers. Right now we're sitting about 13% of adults in this country have type Diagnosed. uh, Are diagnosed. Yeah. Um, That's about one out of seven and a half. Mm -hmm. So that's probably a little more even than, you know, the breast cancer figures that we hear about that, you know, everybody gets pretty upset about. And, again, you know, this is something where we might be able to do something about it. The thing that you kind of hinted at just right there is, you know, what's diagnosed, what's not. You know, at least a third of the people in this country who have type 2 diabetes. And you know, have high blood sugars and are having damage accruing, mm-hmm. they don't even know it.
0: That's amazing. Now, how if I didn't, if my blood sugar is high or there than it should be on a daily basis, but I don't pay any attention to it, what? What would I feel? Are there things that I would feel that would be triggers?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the problem is it comes on so gradually Mm -hmm. that you might not notice. And, you know, objectively, if you measured, maybe you're drinking a little bit more, maybe you're going to the bathroom a little more. Obviously, we measure blood sugar. And, you know, after you eat, your blood sugar is going to go up. Uh, Even if by the time you wake up in the morning fasting, you can fight it down a little bit. You're you're still kind of having damage occur at that point. And you think you feel kind of fine. A lot of times you take people like that and you get them tuned up a little bit get a little bit of medicine help the blood sugars come down mm-hmm. and that's when they can kind of say hey you know i feel better now i didn't think i felt bad before i felt right. normal but now yeah i actually i have more energy i can think better life is better
0: yeah and it's it's the old the old saw right and this is hard for us to hear sometimes eat a little bit better drink a little bit less <laughs> and and get exercise
1: Exercise is really key because it'll help with some of the other things like the weight gain. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, at least as importantly, exercise makes insulin work better. So if you can only make so much and you're kind of at that limit and you exercise a little bit, all of a sudden now that insulin that you can make works better and your blood sugar is doing better.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And because it's, it's ultimately uh, some, it's one of the few things in this world that is a health problem that you have control over. I mean, smoking, obviously, can cause lung cancer. Absolutely. That's a big one. And, and, and a lot of other bad things. So yeah.
1: that, that's probably the number one. And that's a really bad combination with diabetes, too. It gangs really? up on you. Yeah. Bad combination. Same thing. Blood pressure would be the other thing where you might have some control over it. You could, certainly, we have ways to you know treat it. But it also gangs up with diabetes. But similarly, you know, blood pressure. Your blood pressure is a high. You feel fine. Mm-hmm. but Until you, you know, don't. Until you don't. Yeah. And diabetes can be the same way. Right now, actually, we're getting better at defining what is pre-diabetes, where you know your blood sugar is not really high to the point we say you have diabetes, but it's not completely normal either. And right now, already in this country, a third of the adults fit into that category.
0: One third of Americans, third.
1: and that means they're at high risk of progressing to overt diabetes.
0: That's and the, and the implications of that are, what what happens when you get diabetes when you're older?
1: Well, I mean, if if, if you're really old. You know, if you think about some of the long-term complications that those come from many years of poor treatment. So if you don't get until you're eighty, yeah. maybe we don't need to worry as much about it. But you know, for those of us, you know, at, of a certain age, let's say middle-aged, mm-hmm. uh, which is where it starts to really tick up in terms of the incidence. You know, you got a lot of years left to live, a lot of years where if it's not controlled right, you're accumulating damage, and then. You know, diabetes, it doesn't necessarily kill you right away. It makes you suffer for Mm. a long time. You know, it's still the number one cause of adult onset blindness, of kidney failure, of amputations, on down the line.
0: And you can do something about it. If you have any suspicion about it, you should probably... Is there an easy test? It's probably an easy test.
1: There's actually a pre-screening test if you go... uh, CDC actually has a pre-diabetes screening test, and it gets so many points for being so old, so many points if your mother So you go online and do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Certainly... Ask your doctor about it. You know, I yep. hate to sound like one of those pharma commercials. Yeah, that's but, uh, right. You know, th- th- plenty of people to, uh, that are welcome to more than happy to help test and, and walk you through it.
0: Dr. Kirk Griffin, thanks for coming in today. It's great stuff. And uh, we'll have you back when you've cured diabetes. How's that sound? Uh, no, a little bit, a little bit. Hopefully I'm still on the air. No pressure. Uh, thanks a lot. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information 1000 KSOO.